Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise, and this is a bonus episode. I'm releasing in between the episodes of The Great Storm of 1900, Part 1 and Part 2. And I've been releasing bonus episodes throughout the history of this podcast. Sometimes there'll be an anniversary come up that I think needs to be commemorated, or there'll be a little side story that really didn't fit into the main episode. Uh, But this time I'm releasing this bonus episode because I thought that uh, it's, I wanted to cover a part of the experience of the Great Storm of 1900 that really deserves to be covered, but probably shouldn't be uh, part of a main episode because there's really nothing good about uh, the part of that experience that I want to cover in this bonus episode. But it is important, I think, that the victims be remembered and that we, in the modern times, remember just how horrible it was to go through that storm. And so in this bonus episode, we're going to cover uh, the actual night of September 8th. You know, part one was really a story of preparedness or lack of preparedness. It was a story about how People thought they knew a lot more than they did and thought they were prepared a lot more than they were. Part two, we'll cover the aftermath of the storm, what they discovered, and give away a little spoiler for you. We'll we'll talk about the recovery, and the spoiler is this. The recovery is really a happy ending to this whole experience. The recovery of Galveston after the 1900 storm is a story of triumph, and the triumph of the very same spirit that built this state. We talk a lot about the revolution. We've covered a lot of the revolution in this podcast. And certainly it's very easy to see the intrepid nature of the people that came and settled Texas. They, they went to war, left their families, went and fought what amounted to a superpower and created the great state that we now enjoy. But the spirit of the people who endured the 1900 storm and helped Galveston recover was also a pioneering spirit. And it was also an intrepid nature, and it was also really a triumph of uh, an example of resilience in a measure that you just don't see very often. And, and more than that, it was an example of a community coming together. So part two will be um, a positive, uplifting story. Part one certainly had some positive points. Galveston was was the jewel of the South and a great up-and-coming city. But in between those two events, you had the worst natural disaster in American history. You had a hurricane of immeasurable force, literally immeasurable, because the wind, the anemometer that measured the wind on top of the weather building blew off. Once it hit 100 miles an hour, it just, the wind blew it off. So we don't have any idea how strong the wind actually was. There's lots of speculation that it was 120 miles an hour or 140 miles an hour, and it really doesn't matter now. Uh, but it was stronger than anything that anyone on Galveston had seen up until that point. So I didn't want to leave that part out, uh, but there are just parts of natural disaster experiences that I thought I thought we ought to just cut this out of the middle and release it as a bonus episode. It's, it's terrifying. Uh, what those people endured is terrifying, but um, I think it's worth mentioning for sure. Um, let's go back and talk a little bit about part one and where we left the citizens of Galveston on the morning of 
September 8th. Galveston in 1900 was just a wonderful place. The Victorian area in, in general, uh, people, real knowledge and science and industry and everything in the United States was really moving forward. 64 years earlier, Texas had won her independence, and by 1900 in Galveston, you had electric lights, you had telephones, you had streetcars, you had these just massive, ornate, beautiful buildings and all sorts of commerce and shipping. And it was really the epicenter of, of Texas commerce. You know, these days, Texas has always been about business, and it still is. It's, it's the best business climate in the country. Well, that, that was being shaped at that time, and it was being shaped in, in all over the state, but in Galveston, Texas. I mean, the shipping, the exporting, the, the immigration to Texas, which was such an incredible part of building the state, that all happened, well, not all, but most of it through Galveston. I, I mentioned in part one that there were two hurricanes that wiped out the town of Indianola further down the coast, 1875 and 1886, and those storms were were massive, and they were destructive, and they destroyed the only port of any size uh, between Galveston and Tampico, Mexico. And it was, Indianola was sort of competing with Galveston in a sense, uh, but there was plenty of commerce to, to go around, but they certainly were competing as cities will do as for who was going to be the best one. And I think that, you know, it was a close race until those hurricanes just destroyed Indianola. And Galveston was, was clearly the, the victor in that competition, but people were flocking to Galveston. Galveston had about 30,000 residents, give or take, in 1900, and just life was good. There was opportunity everywhere, and the people of the time knew that they were living in the crown jewel of Texas, and they knew that their buildings were better, and their commerce was better, and their streets were better, and, and their prosperity was better, and all the cultures that immigrated to Texas were represented in Galveston, and and uh, you know it was just a very rich city. I said in the in part one that episode, I said it was a lot like New Orleans, only younger and fresher, and that's really what it was like at that time. But along with that came a sort of hubris. I mean, there was a, there was an overconfidence, and one of the areas that was overconfident was the weather service and uh, i described a little bit about the history of the weather service in part one and so there on september 8th 1900 the confidence of the weatherman isaac klein was that it was an accident if a hurricane ever hit texas now there had been lots of hurricanes that had hit texas in fact in in the episode uh, of wise about texas before the great storm. I talked about John James Audubon visiting Texas, and I mentioned a hurricane in 1837 that destroyed Galveston. Now, there wasn't much in Galveston at that time, so there wasn't a lot to wipe off the map, but what there was was, in fact, wiped off the map, and that storm, patrons of the show got a bonus episode on that storm, and I'll tell you how to be a patron later. I release a lot of bonus content to the patrons. I hope you'll stay tuned for that but that storm was called racer storm and that and that storm could very well have been just as strong as the 1900 storm we don't know they didn't have any way to measure it back then that storm traveled 
from the Yucatan Peninsula all the way up the curve of the coast of Mexico and Texas and ended up over the continental United States, over the Gulf Coast as far as Mobile and then out near Cape Hatteras. It, it was an incredibly destructive storm. That was 63 years before the 1900 storm. And so did anyone there remember Racer Storm? Uh, I would say probably not. Uh, but then those we had those two Indianola hurricanes, and, and there were other storms that had hit Galveston. But nevertheless, the Weather Service thought, you know, a storm is not going to hit Texas. And if it hits Texas, it's going to be weaker. But, you know, a storm is not going to hit Texas. And if it hits Texas, it's going to be weaker than it otherwise would be. So obviously, the news from Indianola didn't travel very fast, or maybe just the confidence of the Galvestonians uh, led them to believe that maybe Indianola wasn't ready or not quite as solid as their city or what have you. I mean, certainly there's many buildings in Galveston that stand this very day, including the building where the Weather Service was located, the Levee Building, and they're just rock solid, and uh, they've withstood all the hurricanes since 1900. So, it would be easy to see how someone in 1900 would think, you know, we're just not that vulnerable. Uh, the other important thing that they believed at that time was that floodwaters on Galveston Island would just wash over the island. You know, the island, everyone today who goes to Galveston sees the island uh, after it was elevated, which we'll talk about in part two. So you see the island 17 feet higher than it was in 1900. In 1900, it was essentially flat. Uh, I mentioned in the part one that the the uh, elevation was 8.7 feet at the highest point, which would have been downtown. Well, that's not very high. And you would walk down your street south of Broadway, you'd just walk down your street and right into the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it was just flat, and nobody imagined that that would be ever be a problem. If it were to flood, the floodwaters would just wash over the island into the bay, no big deal. What they didn't count on, though, is what happened in that 1900 storm and actually happened in the last hurricane that hit hit our area square, which was Hurricane Ike in 2008, and that is that the storm surge was so high uh, that it pushed water from the bay, not only from the Gulf Inn, which is what you might call a traditional storm surge, but also from the bay back over the island which no one could have figured. In fact, Isaac Klein wrote about that in his report that he had never seen anything like that. And the truth of the matter is, looking back, as we have the benefit of doing from 2016, the truth of the matter is he he didn't even conceive of that at the time. That was just not part of the pattern. Not only did he think every hurricane turned northeast at Florida and wouldn't even enter the Gulf, much less hit Texas except by accident, he also he never even conceived that the wind would push bay water over Galveston Island. So uh, at one point, one of the accounts that we'll talk about in a few minutes talks about uh, the panic of someone witnessing the waters from the bay and the Gulf meeting together. And, uh, you know, it was on at that point. Nobody had ever seen that before. And, and when you bring those two waves together, the water has nowhere to go but up. Uh, because it's pushing against each other on the island. So that was something that was a significant thing that no one had really seen. Uh, So the Weather Service is confident that they know what's going to happen. The people are confident that Galveston is fairly safe. I mentioned that Isaac Klein believed that 
Galveston was not ever going to be truly devastated. Well, the reason that everyone else believed that, too, is he had written an article in 1891. And as I talked about in part one, after the Indianola hurricane of 1886 and a tropical storm in 1891 that hit lower on the coast, the Galveston Daily News asked him to write an article about hurricanes and sort of give us the latest knowledge. And that's when he wrote the article and he talked about how Galveston was safe and anybody that believed otherwise was was delusional. Those are the words he used, that they were delusional. That was the state of affairs at the end of part one. Uh, the problem was that the wind started blowing. The water was rising rapidly, more rapidly than anybody thought. Uh, the water had come in off the Gulf in greater volume and with greater intensity than the weather indicated. There were certain indications that folks looked for, and one of them was what Isaac Klein described as a brick dust sky, a real red sky. And if you've ever been through a hurricane, I've been through two uh, here in Houston, and you know you see that red glow. And he didn't see that. And one of his neighbors I talked about in part one, Samuel Young. He finally realized what he was seeing on the beach. He realized he was seeing a storm surge as that water came up. Even though the wind wasn't coming up, he knew that something was going on. Uh, But nobody really was bothered by that because they thought, well, you know, okay, something's coming in, no problem. Uh, The weather service uh, from Florida or from Washington had started saying, well, we think that hurricane may actually be in the Gulf. Maybe it didn't turn northeast. And, uh, but it's probably going to hit Louisiana, Mississippi. So the attitude was, look, this thing isn't going to hit Galveston. If it does hit Galveston, it's going to be fine. It's not going to flood that bad. We've been through storms before. It's okay. As the water started coming up, the, I mentioned in part one, a lot of the adults started running down to the beach because the waves were so big and it was quite a spectacular sight. And, you know, there's an old picture, I'll try to get it and put it on the website that, of the streetcar trestle, the streetcar at that time was built on a the streetcar track along what would now be Seawall Boulevard, but was then, I think it might have been called Water Street, but uh, the street that's right next to the beach, the streetcar trestle was built out over the Gulf. So you were actually riding on a bridge out over the Gulf, which I suppose uh, saved space on the streets for pedestrians and wagons. And um, the waves started breaking over that. Well, that was quite the spectacular sight. So everybody ran down to the beach to see it. The kids went out of their houses and started playing in the water. Hey, here comes a flood. We're going to have a good time. We're going to play in the water. And, and the men went to work that day, even though now the wind started to pick up as the morning went on. And um, it, some accounts talk about 30-mile-an-hour wind. Well, I don't know if you listeners out there have been in a 30-mile-an-hour wind, but a 30-mile-an-hour wind is going to get uh, some significant attention on your part. I can promise you it's going to uh, – a 30-mile-an-hour wind is a pretty big wind. And as that wind started, again, they thought, well, here comes a storm. It's manageable, and, uh, and it doesn't look like it's going to be a big deal. So – Uh, we'll just all go to work. And so the men left for work that morning. Well, that wind didn't die down. It picked up. And the water started rising. And the key here is that the water started rising at an increasing rate. So it wasn't just that it was rising quickly, but all these accounts that you read of how shocked the people were to see how fast it was rising make it clear that it was rising at an increasing rate. And uh, on a lot of these survivors' accounts, the women of the house talked 
had a little more of what I'd call responsible fear, a little healthy fear of what was going on, and and started wanting people to stay home from work. And uh, the men were just in uh, the bravado of the age saying, look, this is not a big deal. We're, we're going to go to work. If it really gets bad, I'll come home. My great-great-grandfather, Arnold Wolfram, was one of those men, and he uh, wrote an account that I'm going to talk about, and he he said, you know, look, it's no big deal. I'm going to work. He worked at a grocery store. He said, I'm going to go to work. If it really gets bad, I'll come home. Don't worry. And um, that was typical. I mean, that was a typical reaction of the people at the time. So we've got the kids playing in the water and people looking at the waves on the beach and men are going to work and the wind is starting to blow and the rain is starting to come. Well, one of the firsthand accounts written at the time was written by someone whose identity we don't know. It was a young woman, and she was working at John Seeley Hospital, which is still there, a different building, obviously, at UTMB Medical School. And, you know, in the morning, she talks about the building rocking and the water rising. Now, this this is on the bay side. She's well away from the Gulf. And so she's watching water come in from the bay and maybe from the East Flats at that time. It was called the Eastern Flats. And some of the women in the hospital, are, she remarks, are getting a little nervous and she's comforting them and by noon though she writes that everything is washed away so by noon something is clearly going on she uh, the last sentence of her noon entry says our beautiful bay a raging torrent and she also describes seeing flames in the distance so by noon the storm was severe enough that damage was occurring at three o'clock she wrote the last part and The first part of her first sentence is, I'm beginning to feel a weakening desire for something to cling to. And she closes and says, darkness is overwhelming us to add to the horror. So by three o'clock, it was starting to get dark. Now, many of these accounts talk about that that it was starting to get dark. It wasn't, the sun was not going down, but the storm was coming in. And that's the darkness they're talking about. There's another account from a gentleman named Martin Nicholson. He worked at the Galveston County Jail. He talks about the water rising and that sort of thing, but he mentions by 8 o'clock on September 8th, the night of 8 o'clock, the water touching the top of the steps leading to the back gallery, so the back porch of his house was covered. And he did something that a lot of people did in 1900. They would chop holes in the floor of their house. So you picture these houses. They were elevated because the island would flood from time to time, so they're elevated and most of them, they're, they're all going to have wood floors. And what they would do is they would take axes and they would chop holes in the floor. And the theory was that when the water came in, you'd let the water come in through the bottom of the floor. And as it flooded through the doors, the weight of the water would keep your house anchored to the ground. Now, that turned out not to work. Um, but that was something that was very commonly done. He talked about chopping the holes on the floor, hoping the water would hold the house down. His, his house actually was down, and he did another thing, that, or was held down, excuse me. He did another thing that a lot of people did at that time, and people that had lost their homes or had been walking or had not been home, uh, he would pull them into his house, and uh, he said that he saved seven lives by pulling him in through the window. Of course, they'd be floating by on the waves. So he'd pull them in through the window, and... He describes, um, of course, after the storm that he had lost everything, but he had kept his life. So that the most you could hope for. Another account of the night was written by 
a man named Walker Davis. And Walker Davis didn't even live in Galveston. He was he was in Galveston. He was a salesman, and he ended up in the Tremont Hotel. And the Tremont Hotel still exists, but this was an earlier version in a different location. And uh, he had run down to the beach to you know being a tourist in town when those waves started. He ran down to the beach to look at the waves. He talks about by 11 o'clock that word was getting around town that the waves were destroying all the buildings on the shore. And by the time, by about 1230, he decided it was time to go back to town and the streetcars had quit running. So he could, he had to walk. The water was coming up so fast. It was waist high. He describes the water as rising two and a half feet an hour until it stood three and a half feet on the floor of the Tremont Hotel. By his measurement, the first floor was seven feet above the street, and the water was ten and a half feet in the first floor, or excuse me, three and a half feet in the first floor for a total of ten and a half feet. So that was water that was coming from the bay, meeting the waters from the Gulf. He also says, and of course this it would be just a raw estimate, that the wind was blowing 120 to 130 miles an hour, but he made it through the storm in the Tremont Hotel, there's estimated to be between 800 and 1,000 people in the hotel that night, and they fortunately survived. Another account was written by a schoolteacher named Alice Block. Alice Block was originally from California. She had moved to Galveston, and she taught in Galveston for dozens of years. She didn't pass away until the late 70s, but she described a scene that so many of the residents faced and it was really the the ugly part you know if you could get into a building like the Tremont Hotel you were very lucky or if you had a house that was very sturdy you were very lucky but the her house began flooding at about 10 o'clock on Saturday morning now her house was located a little bit closer to the beach she described her house as being a two-story house not quite two blocks from the beach. So she began flooding early at about 10 on Saturday morning. She said by five o'clock, it was impossible to stay downstairs in the house. And by five o'clock, the wind was terrible. And she looked out and saw houses around her collapsing one by one. So knew that their time was coming. And about six o'clock, their house fell over on its side. Now these are wooden framed houses. And so they collapse as a unit. She, as it fell over on the side, opened the window to try to get out on top of the house so they wouldn't be carried off. They were wedged uh, in a part of the house between the window and trying to keep their heads above the water. And there was a roof, a piece of a roof, not from their house, floating by. So they climbed, she and her parents climbed out of the window and got on that roof, uh, which was hung up on a lot of the debris. And she made a very interesting statement as they scrambled up to get on a roof that would float so they wouldn't drown. She says, in the meantime, the mud had torn nearly all of my clothes from me. And that's a very common thing when you read the accounts of the survivors. Uh, many of them had lost all their clothing, struggling in the because the, the water was carrying all this mud, the mud from the bay, the mud from the gulf. And uh, the other thing that Alice writes about and this is the sentence, constantly we were struck by flying missiles. One, at one time my mother was struck in the head and a gash cut. My father was struck in the chest and for a few moments was unconscious 
and had I not held him up, would have drowned. So one of the, of course, very dangerous things was all these pieces of houses and pieces of buildings and driftwood and all the various small items that make up a community were flying through the air like missiles. There, there were lots of slate roofs in Galveston, and the pieces of slate were blowing off. And you can imagine they were like saw blades cutting through the air. And, and there's no way you're going to be able to see them. For goodness sake, it's getting dark. You can't, can't see with the wind blowing in your face and the rain and these missiles flying everywhere. So there were, you know, we'll never know how many people were injured and eventually died or killed instantly by flying debris, but it was everywhere. Well, they survived the storm, made it to Sunday morning, and she kept teaching in Galveston. Let me take a minute and try to describe what you might have experienced on the night of September 8th. One man uh, had three children and a wife and his brother, and they were in a house, and they thought the house was going to stand, that it was the safest place to be. The house would rock back and forth. Now, remember, the wind's coming up. It's roaring like a train. You're not going to be able to hear anything. The storm is blotting out the sun, so it's going to be dark. There's not going to be any electricity, no candles. Uh, The house is rocking back and forth. In fact, the particular family I'm talking about took in another group of people. So there were uh, as many as 50 people in this house. The house would be swaying back and forth, and then eventually... You could feel it slip off its pilings, and the house as a whole start to move like a boat that would be turning over. And at that point, there is nothing you can do about it. You grab for your loved ones, the house turns over and begins to collapse on itself and on the people inside. And hopefully, you float to the top. Hopefully, uh, your head breaks the surface of the water, and you're going to grab for the nearest thing, that you could find, which was often a large piece of someone's porch or a rooftop or anything that was could be floating by that you could get on. That happened to Isaac Klein, the Galveston Weather Bureau chief. He had gone home. They took people into their house. Isaac believed his house was strong enough to withstand the storm. His brother Joseph thought otherwise. And Joseph was right. The house collapsed and eventually Isaac was able to recover his three children, but his wife was lost to the storm. There's another account written by a lady named Ida Austin. Her house was on the other side of Broadway. If you imagine the island, a long, narrow island uh, that is Galveston, there's a street called Broadway. It's the main sort of the main drag, and it bisects the island into two parts for purposes of describing this hurricane. And north of Broadway is closer to downtown. South of Broadway, you start getting toward the beach. And she lived north of Broadway in a a two-story house. And she talked about spending Saturday morning rearranging things, moving all her outdoor furniture in, and getting ready for what they figured would be a storm. But... uh, At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, now by 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the beach side, they were in a bad way. But at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on the bay side, uh, she was okay and describes hearing a man running up the street screaming that the waters of the bay and the waters of the gulf had met on 15th Street. Now the north-south streets in Galveston are given numbers. Some of them also have names, but they're numbered. And so 15th Street uh, would have been 
uh, fairly close to the beach, uh, fairly close to the eastern end, and the Gulf and the Bay Waters were meeting on 15th Street. And she describes running out to her balcony and looking and realizing uh, that that was true, but she was okay because the, the waters had never flooded her house. Uh, but this time she thought, well, maybe the water is high enough. So she started moving stuff upstairs. And, um, but then, of course, the wind, as the storm came ashore, the wind was so severe that they realized that uh, it was much, much more than they thought. And she also describes all the slate shingles, the planks, the debris, flying through the air Uh, they went out and she had a milk cow so she went out and got her cow brought it onto the gallery of her house but that wasn't going to be good enough so she actually took the cow into her dining room and uh, had the cow spend the night in the dining room which apparently saved its life Uh, so uh, the water began to recede after the storm she wrote uh there's a funny part of her first-hand account I got to read. She she writes, quote, The excitement and nervous strain had made us very hungry, and one of the gentlemen said he would milk the cow. And together with coffee made on a chafing dish and some cold bread, we had a midnight spread. So in the middle of the night, I guess, he just went over into the dining room and did a little cow milking. But they made it through and uh, lived to write about it. Now, there's a great first-hand account by a man named Lloyd Failing. Lloyd Failing was a military man. He ended up in command. We'll talk more about him in part two, in command of much of the military during the recovery efforts. But as the storm got worse, he was he was at 21st and Market Streets, which is was downtown Galveston. And the storm got worse, so he was, he was going to try to get into the YMCA building, which was thought to be one of the most one of the sturdiest buildings, uh, but the water was coming up so fast. And so this was the bay. They were on the bay side, very close to the bay on Market Street, and that water would have been uh, rising very quickly. He went into a building called the Gill and League building. And um, as the storm progressed, he wanted to get some food for the people that were in the building. So he described swimming across the street to a restaurant uh, and they were putting the stuff in the restaurant on the higher sh- shelves, thinking, well, this is just, you know, the water's going to come up. And uh, he got some food, brought it over, but the wind kept coming up. The water kept coming up. And, of course, he he too talks about the air being full of roofs, slate, masonry, and telegraph poles. So you can imagine a wind so strong blowing a telegraph pole through the air down the street. And then... He's, he's there looking out onto the street as a boat, a sloop that's 30 feet long, comes barreling down the street on the floodwaters with the captain desperately trying to anchor it. So he, he and um, some other people got, got the rope and helped him tie that boat off. And the boat was full of will, women and children. So uh, they caught the rope of the boat and pulled the boat into the building on the 21st street side uh, and tied it to a stairway. So the water was so high that a 30 foot boat just floated right into the building and they saved the women and the children that were in that boat. So that must've been quite the harrowing experience. Um, and I can't imagine with all the stuff flying through the air, just how dangerous it was to go out there and try to accomplish that kind of rescue. So those are some of the stories that were typical of the people that survived the storm. Again, they didn't think that it was going to be 
obviously didn't think it was going to be as destructive as it was because they had no experience with that sort of destruction. And so you had hundreds, probably thousands of people staying in their houses, not even imagining that a storm could be so devastating as to take their house down. Well, of course, the problem is that it was that devastating, and those houses were were destroyed one by one by one like falling dominoes. And it was just too late. And there were so many people caught in the flood or injured with the flying debris or staying in their houses that they just couldn't uh, deal with it. And they got caught and there was nowhere to go. The storm was so violent they couldn't get out. As the house started to collapse, they were stuck. They were probably drowned in their house. And if they weren't, if they managed to get out and they managed not to get hit by something, they were in a raging flood water and a raging hurricane. So they were going to get crushed by things floating in the water or sucked down into a whirlpool of sorts that formed by the debris. So it was really a hopeless almost situation. I want to I want to close that night by talking about my great-great-grandfather. Now, I know it may be I have a lot of personal connection to a lot of the episodes of this podcast, but uh, that's because I do, in fact, have a lot of personal connection in, to Texas history. That's why I'm so passionate about it. And one of the, uh, I discovered a little more connection than I thought. Um, my great-great-grandfather uh, had a published account of what happened that night in Galveston, and, and I knew some of the family story, but I had not read this published account. And his name was Arnold Rudolph Wolfram. He'd been a cowboy in South Texas on a large ranch. He moved to Galveston. And uh, in 1900, he had six children, one of whom was my great-grandmother. And they uh, lived on 29th Street. They lived at 1414 29th Street, which is uh, on the beach side of Broadway, uh, not that far from the beach. He was a salesman for a fruit and produce store that was downtown, located at 23rd Street in the Strand. And he recalled uh, September 8th as being just like any other morning. And he left for work. His wife, of course, as I mentioned, determined to do so. He said, look, if the storm really is coming in, I'll come home. And uh, he said Galveston was very small at the time. And and he writes, uh, quote, my business was only 20 short blocks from our home, close quote. So it was nothing for the tough folks at the time to walk 20 20 blocks. He um. He got to the office. They put everything up on shelves. Now, his office at or his store at 23rd and Strand would have been not far from Lloyd Failing uh, at 21st and Market. So they knew the water was coming up, and it was coming from the bay. So they were putting most of their stuff up on the top shelves. It was raining, the wind. We've heard about all that. Uh, he went home for lunch. So he walked that 20 blocks back home for lunch but decided he was going to go back to work. Now, by this time, uh, at noon, on the beach side at his house, it would have been a full-on tropical storm. I mean, the rain was blowing and the wind was going and uh, the water was coming up. Um, But Mr. Wolfram recalls shortly after noon that the wind suddenly increased. Well, what that was was the wind was shifting to the northeast, so the the dirty side or the bad side of the hurricane. And the rain picked up, and he knew then he needed to get home. So um, with all due respect to great-great-grandpa, he made a little bit of a miscalculation, and he got stuck at the office when it really turned bad. So he left, and those 20 blocks had gotten a lot longer by this time. Uh, 
um, he had a new pair of shoes, interestingly, and he picked up that package of shoes and to bring them home. And he ended up making himself a helmet because of all the things that were flying through the air. He tied his shoes together and tied them around his head. So I can only imagine what that must have looked like. But hey, um, so he walks, he walks home, starts to walk home, and runs into a 10-year-old boy uh, who had was being swept by the floodwaters uh, toward a drain, Mr. Wolfram recalled. So he reached out and, and dragged the young man up onto the sidewalk and recognized him. He knew the kid, and the kid lived near him. So he said, come on, we're going to go home. And, and uh, he showed him how to make the helmet out of his shoes, and off they went. Uh, but and Wolfram recalls uh, making their way in the very face of the storm. Well, at that point, it really doesn't matter what way you're facing, you're surrounded. And he knew that they were in a life-threatening situation. He also describes not being able to hear. So these guys are walking in the hurricane toward the beach, uh, trying to get home. So they ended up going down uh, six blocks to the west, they made it down to Broadway, which was a flowing river at that point, and Wolfram was scared. He knew they'd have to swim across, and, and he knew they'd have to do it quickly because the water was rising, but he wasn't quite sure he wanted to do it. He ended up at the, artil- the old artillery club hanging onto the fence and helping himself walk down Broadway. He went another block and ended up at the Rosenberg Monument, which still stands, and uh, he describes vehicles, which would have been wagons and debris of all sort, wedged up against that monument. They did manage to get across Broadway, and the water was now up to their armpits, as he writes it. And he found, he at the corner of 27th and Broadway, a friend of his lived there uh, named E.E. E. Rice. And they knew they couldn't make it any further, so... He ended up grabbing a hold of a tree at 27th and Broadway, and he got up into the tree and pulled the boy up behind him. And so they're in the tree facing all sorts of flying wood, flying slate, flying glass, flying anything that 120 or 30 mile an hour wind would pull. He described a, a woman, a man and a woman coming down Broadway on a roof floating in the water and that crashed onto the tree that they were in. And uh, it broke. It broke in half, and the man was carried away on one half, and uh, the woman was stretching out her hand, screaming to Wolfram to try to pull him, pull her up, and he leaned down to try to do it, but he couldn't. they couldn't uh, reach each other, and the, the roof broke up, and the woman was swept away, which haunted him, apparently, the rest of his life. And so... They were not going to do very well in that tree, uh, but a long board or a rafter or a roof joist, something wedged between that tree and the porch of the Rice House, which was really a godsend. Uh, so Wolfram and the boy, holding on to that board, made it across to the Rice House, which was standing fairly strong. And uh, they made it into the house, and they survived the storm. Um, I'll tell you in episode two what happened when he left the house the next morning. But truly, the September 8th, 1900, was a horrible night.
we'll never know the actual death toll from the 1900 storm. We've seen numbers from the first number they conservatively estimated was 3,000 people. It took weeks to compile lists. Uh, many people just simply disappeared. Uh, if you go down to the cemetery and the cemeteries that are located on Broadway in Galveston, you'll see uh, the phrase lost in storm in so many of the stones and so many of the graves. The estimates are 3,000, 4,000, 6,000. Some people said 10,000. I mean, uh, truly, we'll never know. But uh, it was, without a doubt, the worst natural disaster in history and, and certainly in American history and changed the way that we viewed hurricanes and, and the possibilities that they brought. So on September 8th, 1900, the beautiful up-and-coming wonderful city of Galveston was changed forever. And uh, in part two, we'll talk about what everyone discovered when the waters began to go down and the sun began to come out and the city began to recover. Uh, and the ending of that story is actually a fairly positive one. So thanks. For, that wraps it up for this bonus episode of Wise About Texas. I uh, appreciate you listening. If you'd like to get some more bonus content of Texas history, if you'll go to www.patreon.com slash wiseabouttexas, you can pledge to support the show financially. If you think the the show that I'm producing is worth a dollar, pledge a dollar. If you think it's worth more, pledge more. I want to thank everybody who has signed up to support the show. We really appreciate it. Like and share the show's Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wise About Texas. So say a prayer for the victims of the Galveston hurricane. Stay safe and until next time, God bless Texas and we'll see you down the road.